Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Nielsen Show. Coming to you a little bit later than the weekend, uh, Tuesday. Coming out Tuesday. I don't know. I was trying to get it done this weekend and just got busy. So, here we are now. Uh, this episode is going to be all over the place, so try and keep up because this is how my squirrel brain works all over the place. Um, chasing, chasing that nut down the road and left, right, left, right, all over the place. Uh, I've got a bunch of posts that I've saved off of Instagram because they sparked my interest on the topics they were talking about. So, uh, the first off, I'm going to talk about the forest fires because they seem to be still popping up all over the place. And the last estimate I seen was that two and a half million acres roughly have burned so far, but I have a little story here that i'd like to read from forest history society it is titled u.s forest service fire suppression legendary forest fires in the late 1800s like the peshtigo fire of 1871 bolstered the argument by early conservationists like franklin hugh and bernard Fernot that forest fires threatened future commercial timber supplies concern for protecting those supplies and also watersheds helped conservationists convince the U.S. government in 1891 to begin setting aside national forest reservations. When the U.S. Forest Service was established in 1905, it was given managerial control of these lands, soon renamed National Forests. Forest management necessitated fire protection. After all, foresters argued, why create national forests if they were going to burn down? Now, part of the problem is with that is also that we're not doing anything with these forests. It's getting the all-natural treatment, and unfortunately, these days, we are watching it burn down because it is so overgrown and mismanaged. The firefighters, I mean, are doing all they can out there, busting their butts, but you cannot control something that is burning that hot. And as fast as these are, and the drought, drought conditions added to that, it's it's just like a whirlwind of, like a tornado fire. Um, going on with this article, just five years later, in what has become known as the Big Blow Up, a series of forest fires burned three million acres in Montana, Idaho, and Washington in only two days. The 1910 fires had a profound effect on national fire policy. Local and National Forest Service administrators emerged from the incident convinced that the devastation could have been prevented if only they had had enough men and equipment on hand. They also convinced themselves and members of Congress and, in, and the public that only total fire suppression could prevent such an event from occurring again and that the Forest Service was the only outfit capable of carrying out that mission. Three of the men who had fought the 1910 fires, William Greeley, Robert Stewart, and Ferdinand Silcox, served from 1920 to 1938 as Forest Service chief, which put them in a position to institute a policy of total fire suppression. This policy had two goals, preventing fires and suppressing a fire as quickly as possible once it started. To prevent fires, the Forest Service came out in opposition to the practice of light burning, even though many ranchers, farmers, and timbermen favored because it improved land conditions. It must be remembered that at this time, foresters had limited understanding of the ecological role of fire. 
Forest Service leaders simply argued that any and all fire in the woods was bad because it destroyed standing timber. Educating the public about the need for fire prevention became an important part of this goal. In 1944, the Forest Service introduced the character Smokey Bear to help deliver its fire prevention message. Um, This is something that the Native Indians also understood. And I think that's where a lot of these early settlers uh, got the ideas from to burn off stuff underneath. And if you've been out to a lot of our national forests and seeing the devastation that those pine beetles have been doing into the pine trees, um, it looks dead anyways. And the biggest thing with all of these uh, people that are claiming to be all for the environment, uh, or otherwise called environmentalists, they don't grasp that concept. And we are kind of in the, the dire areas of our national forests now because we haven't done it, been able to do anything effective with them for decades now. Then add in, you know, the drought conditions we've had in the West, especially because more and more people keep moving to the West. So your population numbers go up. We change the amount of water that goes into the lakes and streams and, everything else for our personal consumption. So once again, there's your man-made climate change. It ain't car exhaust and that stuff that, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll give it a, a small, small edge percentage that that causes what the, you know, the science says is man-made climate change. Anyways, going on. The other goal the Forest Service had was to develop a systematic approach to fire protection. In the decades following the big blow-up, this would have involved building networks of roads, communication systems, lookout towers, and ranger stations. To protect both federal and non-federal lands, the agency won passage of the Weeks Act of 1911, which in part established a framework between the federal government and the states for cooperative firefighting, The framework would later include private forest associations and landowners. By offering financial incentives to states to fight fires, the Forest Service came to dominate and direct what amounted to a national fire policy. Following several several severe fire seasons in the early 1930s, fire suppression took on even greater urgency. In 1933, the federal government created the Civilian Conservation Corps, which put thousands of men to work building fire breaks and fighting fires, which typically, you know, under management by an educated Forest Service agent, logging companies that could make a profit on it could do that stuff. Anyways, moving on. In 1935, the Forest Service established the so-called 10 a.m. policy, which decreed that every fire should be suppressed by 10 a.m. the day following its initial report. Other federal land management agencies quickly followed suit and joined the campaign. Jeez, I'm having a rough time here. And joined the campaign to eliminate fire from the landscape. Fire suppression efforts were aided by the development of new technologies such as airplanes, smoke jumpers, medicines, and fire suppression chemicals. With such tools, fires could be fought anywhere and where. 
Until around 1970, federal land managers remained obsessed with controlling large fires, but during the 1960s, scientific research increasingly demonstrated the positive role fire played in forest ecology. This led in the early 1970s to a radical change in Forest Service policy. To let fires burn when and where appropriate, it began with allowing natural-caused fires to burn in designated wilderness areas from this the let-burn policy evolved. Though it suffered a setback in the wake of the 1988 Yellowstone fires, since around 1990, um, fire suppression efforts and policy have had to take into account exurbent sprawl in what is called the wildland-urban interface. Another issue the Forest Service now faces is that fires have grown in size and ferocity over the last 25 years. The firefighting budget has grown to about 50% of the agency's entire budget which limits funds available for land management activities such as land restoration and forest thinning that could aid in fire suppression. Now, uh, I don't remember what the percentage is, but there's a really, really high percentage that most of these forest fires are caused by humans. The random ones here and there that are caused by lightning are very few and far between. But I don't know how many different times I've gone out into the wilderness and come across somebody's campfire, especially, that's still smoking, sometimes still on fire, and nobody's around. Everybody's completely abandoned it, and not even an effort to try and cover it up with dirt or anything. So what typically happens is you get some wind that blows through there, uh, especially if you get some good gusts. It'll peel off all that white ashy stuff off the top that's been insulating the coals underneath. And it blows those sparks off typically into grass or something that's low on the ground that's already dry, especially this time of year. And there you go, forest fire. And a lot of times, you know, this hot, dry part of the season, it doesn't take barely a teeny spark to just devastate the landscape. And then you got the secondary problems you run into the the when you get the fall rains that come in and there's no vegetation on the ground. Um, and sometimes those storms bring down a lot of water all at once. And instead of it, you know, slowly trickling into the dirt, it saturates the dirt and then you end up with landslides. And that just makes a whole nother mess in itself. Then you've got dirty ash and dirt that's going into your rivers and into your lakes and wherever else the streams travel to also thus for polluting your drinking water because that's pretty much everywhere here in the valley we're off running off of uh runoff and stuff from the mountain other places you know in the lowlands they they're theirs is out of wells so they don't have to deal with it as much but it's still uh something that happens um let's see here Future Forest. Uh, let's see what these guys have to say. Trying to find one here that's kind of a more of a not conservationist, but more of a I don't know. Let's see. Here's plummeting morale in the Forest Service. Well, let's see what that one says. Uh, it's from Mountain Journal. Plummeting morale in the Forest Service. Why it should matter to Americans who love nature. 
For many years, the U.S. Forest Service was considered one of the best federal agencies to work for. For those, oh, to those who don't know, the service originated as a conservation agency devoted to watershed protection and a sustainable timber harvest. What? That sounds like common sense. That's crazy. Crazy talk, I tell you. Until the 1930s, management of our national forests was mostly custodial. Boundaries were established and marked, field stations constructed, and later, telegraph and telephone lines installed. Early rangers caught game poachers, timber thieves, rogue miners, farms illegally using the forest for their businesses, among other activities. They lived and worked out of remote cabins, which is part of why the Forest Service became a decentralized agency, which, with much discretion, left to local rangers. There's plenty of good information out there about Forest Service history, but a few things there that are of relevance to morale are worth repeating here. Yes, morale, that essential word not oft mentioned, but which explains why good people choose to proudly wear the government uniform, often at low pay, knowing they are trying to serve the public good. Morale is as important whether it involves government service or a private company. A place to work with great morale not only attracts people of high caliber, but it is an essential ingredient in retaining them. Today, the morale inside many federal land management agencies is in a free fall. To get at why, let's first consider how the Forest Service built its morale. First of all, the Forest Service was well thought of by the public, largely, largely for its success in reducing wildfire. By the 1960s, the acreage burned by wildfire had declined by 90% compared to the 1930s. Over time, new and different kinds of uses fell under Forest Service management, and the agency shifted focus in modern times. Demand for timber products after World War II (laughs) was a primary influence, and the workforce swelled to respond. New employees coming out of forestry schools shared common values and a sense of purpose. They were supporting the post-war prosperity and progress of the nation. This contributed greatly to high morale, as Newsweek magazine reported in 1952. Quote, the Forest Service is one of Washington's agencies that doesn't have to worry about next fall's election, nor will the next administration have to worry about the Forest Service. In 47 years, the foresters have been untouched by scandal. Most congressmen would as soon abuse their own mothers as to be unkind to the Forest Service, unquote. And that, 47 years ago, was probably true. Now it's just turned into another one of the federal government's ginormous bureaucracies. Timber production began a three-decade rise in 1940, topping 12 billion board feet harvested between 1965 and 1975. During the same decades, Americans gained enough leisure time and prosperity to travel to the forests for recreation, beyond the uses of the backcountry by hunters, outfitters, and dude ranchers. Timber production and public use of the forests clashed in the 60s and 70s as people seeking beautiful oh, beauty found large clear cuts instead. Now these clear cuts, number one, are great fire breaks. Number two, it opens up the ground because if there was pine trees there, they lose pine cones, which are full of seeds for new pine trees. And it typically takes five to ten years for them trees to start growing back up. And realistically, what typically happens is 
there's squirrels, all kinds of different things. These pine cones for years before they come in and do those clear cuts fall on the ground and they're buried in the soil or get buried under uh, pine needles and stuff that break down and kind of turn into a, a soft soil on the forest floor. Now it sees sunlight and it gets water down to the, the dirt. And then eventually up pops all kinds of new pine trees because now the sunlight is actually hitting the ground and it actually almost over forests some of these areas. But, you know, you're getting the product, uh, creates all kinds of things. I mean, your lumber for your homes, paper from the pulp. I mean, you name it. There's a ton of products that come from our forest, most of which, which most of us don't even think about. Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. Timber production and public use of the forest clashed in the six. Oh, I read this one. Oh, okay. Found large clear cuts instead. Soil eroded into rivers and... As pioneering conservationist Bob Marshall, once a Forest Service employee himself, famously, famously lamented, the nation's wilderness was disappearing as quickly as a snowbank on a summer afternoon. Uh, that's called mismanagement. You can't let companies just go wild as well because they will for profit, I mean, run themselves out of business if they had the opportunity. It's just... Uh, condition of mankind um uh, the forest service became seen by many as an advocate for the timber industry and not much else an explosion of reforms new mandates and laws followed what citizens wanted from their national forests changed and the old line foresters now had to share their workspace with wildlife biologists soil scientists and archaeologists many of whom were of a younger post-earth generation. Gone were the days when everyone within the agency thought alike, and gone were the articles of praise by the press. Issues became more complicated as our understanding of nature grew beyond viewing the land only for its commodity exploitive value. We documented consequences of actions previously thought benign. Headlines covered fish populations endangered by logging runoff, and the indiscriminate use of DDT and herbicides excuse me, delivered by air over the national forests as well as private croplands. Insects and birds and other creatures suffered. Square mile clear cuts graced the covers of conservation-oriented magazines. The Forest Service's sense of purpose became muddled under laws meant to rein in the effects of maximum, often single-focused timber production, not only was the public raising a stink, but there was much internal disagreement about what the Forest Service should be doing and how new laws had to be implemented, like it or not. A good number of the district rangers I knew along the paragon of the decentralized Forest Service, despite the Wilderness Act, for example, because it was a top-down law that took away their management discretion. Everything from wilderness to ologists resource specialists, to women were being shoved down their throats. <laughs> uh, read Marsh's recent piece, the hashtag me too in a culture of good old boys. <laughs> Sadly, I experienced the much reported down downward trend in morale. And according to current employees I've talked to, 
it has been especially severe in the last decade. Much can be tied to increasing workloads and reduced funding, and by the way, the agency has reacted to these circumstances. Among the primary contributors to low morale that I have witnessed, heard about, or dealt with directly are the following. Number one, centralization of administrative processes, human resources, finance, IT support. This has resulted in a shift in the administrative burden to each employee, including seasonal workers at the ranger districts. How did this happen when centralization was thought to be the answer to duplication and inefficiencies? The problem rests in what the centralized service centers were set up to do, and this did not include specific tasks that could only be done at the local level. Gone are the personnel officers, computer specialists, and clerks whose work once supported the employees of a national forest or ranger district. Much of the work they did has been passed on to each field employee who now must take time to learn the minutiae of online forms for reporting travel expenses, overtime work, and so on. Instead of walking down the hall to ask the personnel officer a quick question, they play phone tag with someone in a distant state who can't really help them. So the ticket is passed on to a supervisor who may or may not return the call within a week's time. The biggest problem with all this, a friend told me, is the sense that things are not going to get better. She questioned whether top leaders leadership knows or cares that employees are struggling to keep up with their ever-increasing administrative burden while trying to find time for their real jobs, and she doubted that citizens care either. They just wanted to have access to the forest and find decent roads and trails when they get there, she said. But the decent roads and trails depend on forest employees getting out there to work on them. That is definitely where they'd rather be. Second, Morale Buster involves changing or conflicting mandates, priorities, and direction. With increasing consolidation of forests and ranger districts and resource specialists, shared between two or more employees often answer to multiple bosses, each of whom has his or her own expectations. Third, lack of trust. Federal employees of all stripes are often characterized as drones with cushy benefits. They are blamed for actions and circumstances stances over which they have no control. When President Reagan declared himself a sagebrush rebel, he set the scene for decades of attacks against agencies that were simply trying to do their jobs as required by law. The office bombings have dropped off since the 90s, but the ominous atmosphere continues. It is an atmosphere that allows a group of armed thugs to take over a wildlife refuge, expel employees, destroy government property, and cause general mayhem, and then be acquitted of all wrongdoing. It is an atmosphere that makes employees wary of one another. Fourth, up and down budgets. The basic operation and maintenance needs on a national forest don't go up or down in response to falling budgets. They only go up. Costs increase each year for personnel, vehicles, and supplies, and the demands coming from the public to do more and keep increasing. No private sector business person could operate successfully with the kind of conditions handed federal land management agencies. And that's one of the problems with a lot of these federal agencies is they are just too big, too bloated, and they can't be managed. But that's just my take. Because, I mean, you don't want to take my word for it. Just go and look at a lot of these ginormous organizations within the federal government.
I mean, it, it doesn't take a whole lot to find. I mean, you're you're even talking like the FBI and different places like that because they're all main headquartered in D.C. But there's so many chiefs from different areas and everybody's getting pulled in a lot of different directions. Like I said, there's just a lot of room for corruption, mismanagement, uh, you name it. goes down the list. <laughs> Once in a while, there's a monetary shot in the arm. In the early 1990s, President George H.W. Bush declared himself the environmental president and funded the American Outdoors Initiative, which sent a three-year boost to the recreation budget in national forests and parks. Able to get ahead of the backlog of deferred maintenance at campgrounds, trailheads, and roads, the Bridger Teton jumped at the chance. I was thrilled to see the reconstruction of public campgrounds and major trailheads with new handicapped accessible toilets, tables, leveled parking pads, hitch rails, and even some sturdy corrals, water systems, bear-proof bear -proof trash facilities, and a major cleanup at remote cabins rented to the public. Portals into the wilderness now had their access roads graded, graveled, and rolled to allow people to actually reach the new trailhead parking areas while hanging onto their mufflers. Whoa. Hanging on to their mufflers. That's a pretty bold statement. Uh, then the money dried up and it hasn't come back. 25 years later, with no funds for maintenance, the roads have gone back to their earlier condition, and you once again can't drive to the trailheads. As one who helped make all that improvement possible in the early 90s, it breaks my heart. As a taxpayer, it makes me angry. And as a former for Forest Service employee who once took pride in such work, it makes me sad for those still working who are unable to reverse the downward trend. More with less is a time-worn mantra of the can-do Forest Service, but after a while, the less becomes so little it feels like starvation. Even with working extra hours without pay, donating leave at the end of the year, spending nights and weekends writing grants to help boost the budget, it's never enough to meet all the needs. One employee I talked to recently said that the mantra has changed in the face of reality you must start doing less she is told it is fine to be given permission by one's employer to do less though it's rare to hear exactly what you're meant to stop doing and the less with less refrain does not translate to fewer expectations from the public <laughs> and this uh article goes on you know quite a ways so if you want to read it, it's mountainjournal.org uh the title See, go back here to the top. It's called Plummeting Morale in the Forest Service Why It Should Matter to Americans Who Love Nature. And with that, I'm going to take a break on this segment to come back into the next smorgasbord of wonderful stuff to talk about in just a moment. So here in this segment, uh, I'm going to start off with a uh, Lauren Bobert tweet that was posted by Benny Johnson here on my uh, following list of people. It says, leftists who can't define what a woman is, shout, they're for women. They can't define basic firearm features, but want to restrict your right to bear arms. They define months of rioting, destruction, and violence as peaceful protests. They don't know the definition of reality. <laughs> ah, that was the first one. Uh, let's see. What's the next one here? Um, I think this is... I got a bunch from like PragerU on here as well. 
administration to want lower gasoline prices is at best a gigantic pretense and most likely a lie. Their goal from the beginning is to make fossil fuels unaffordable so you don't use them. And so everything needs to be focused on blaming the current global anti-fossil fuel movement, including this administration, for the problem and demanding that they reverse course in a system in a system in a systematic way. Their goal is to make gas unaffordable. And I've been I've been reading out other articles as well where gas stations, especially owned by like a lot of the uh, refinery companies, Chevron, a bunch of the OPEC companies are because of the red tape from the governments, not just here in the United States, but worldwide, are starting to just switch their gas stations out to electric charging stations. And more than likely, uh, you know, all these environmentalists that are like, we shouldn't be subsidizing them, are going to be subsidizing these gas stations to change over to electricity. So it's just kind of one of those funny things that... I don't know if they just don't understand a lot of the stuff they do (laughs) or if they just are so sold on all the lies they tell all the time that it seems to make sense, I guess. (laughs) Um, Let's see. What's next here? Uh, A proof that America is not racist. How do you explain three million blacks moving to America from Africa and the Caribbean in the last few decades. How do you explain? So either all of those three million blacks are stupid or it's not true. One, there are only two possibilities. As I say, did any Jews move to Germany in the 1930s? (laughs) Not one. As bad as it was for Jews in Eastern Europe, not one moved to Germany because Germany really was systemically racist. Yeah. But America is the land of opportunity for black Africans and black Caribbeans. That's the point. It is the land of opportunity for every race. Absolutely. That's pretty uh, compelling. Very compelling. Dennis Prager. In all his infinite wisdom. Um... Also, it's getting close to that time of year. Uh, August comes around when the, here in Utah at least, archery hunt starts. <laughs> I'm excited. I already got my tag. I definitely need to get out and shoot my bow more, though. My, my shoulder is getting weak. Um, but <laughs> I seen a uh, funny meme on here. Uh, it says, I hunt so I can get the healthiest food on earth. And then it says, my diet during hunting season has a Mountain Dew, a cheap breakfast sandwich, and a bunch of cosmic brownies. <laughs> uh, for uh, rednecks like me, that's pretty much true. Maybe not the Mountain Dew, but the other junk food. <laughs> I just thought that was pretty hilarious, so I figured I'd share that. Um, let's see. Uh, speaking of hunting, there is... Uh, this is a the DC Project. Um, it's, this lady just does, she's doing a speech right now about gun advocacy. So here it goes. Next speaker is Dr. Lori Blackwell and the final speaker is Gina Yu. Are we having fun yet? (laughs) Good evening. My name is Lori Blackwell. I'm from Lake Villa. Thanks for the opportunity to speak tonight. I'm the Illinois director of the DC project. We're a nationwide organization of women safeguarding the second amendment. 
We are nonpartisan and we come from all walks of life. We all share the horror of the senseless shootings in Highland Park two weeks ago. The murderer, like a great majority of these criminals, was known to the police. He was a loner. He was fascinated with violent video games and internet images. He had a challenging home life and he threatened to kill his own family in 2019. He had planned and fantasized his actions far ahead of time. He showed his plan in music videos. He even had an image of a man dressed in black holding a rifle painted on his mother's house. Um, let's see, this keeps going. Like almost all of these murderers, he had no respect for human life and dreamt of a high body count. I realized that we are all sickened by this and we all want to do something. Please don't let do something mean ban something. One of our sayings with the DC project is education, not legislation. There are thousands of laws already on the books nationwide. Even Highland Park has had an AR-15 ban since 2013. As it's been said tonight, criminals do not follow laws because they are criminals. Murder remains illegal. Whether it's done with a firearm, a vehicle, a hammer, a pressure cooker, or a van full of fertilizer. Please resist the temptation to limit tools to the responsible gun owner. AR-15 style rifles have been around since the 60s. We need to focus our efforts on the root causes of violence, mental health issues, and accurate and timely reporting to the NICS database. I have my own business. I live alone. I'm also a firearms instructor and a competitive shooter. It is offensive to me to be lumped in with these criminals. The proposed ban will do nothing to prevent crime and will cause the closing of at least two local FFLs and the loss of the jobs that they provide. It will also cost, cause tax dollars to be lost, both from the loss of sales taxes and the money that will be required to defend the lawsuits that will follow this ban. So rather than vote for another ban of a legal product, let's all work together to tackle some of the root causes of the development of these criminals and enforce the laws that already exist. Thank you. The next speaker is Dr. Lori Blackwell and the final oh, that the just next starts over Dr. again. I don't know why it has something stupid that Instagram does. It just starts over. Anyways, the the headline on that one is it is wrong to lump responsible gun owners with murders. Uh, enough said about that. Um Oh, here we go. We got a little JC Spears here. Let's see what his is. Has announced he will give away virtually all his wealth to his foundation. And because his foundation is owned and controlled by him, he'll be giving away all his wealth to himself. That's how his philanthropy works. Just when the naysayers claim the Biden administration hasn't been accomplishing anything, we're proud to tell you they've accomplished a new 40-year high of inflation, 9.1% in June, to be exact. And the good news with this accomplishment is that the money you work hard for is worth almost 10% less, which makes you more dependent on the administration that's working hard to make your money less valuable. Also in June, food prices increased by 10.1%. So while your money is worth almost 10% less, you have to pay 10% more for food. 
But that shouldn't matter to you unless you want to eat. But for the few Americans who do want to eat, you don't have to worry because the nation's largest farmland owner with over 260,000 acres will be looking to do with his farmland what he does with his other philanthropy. And in June, fuel prices have... Let's just skip this next part. Insider <laughs> trading is a crime for thee, but not for me. Accordingly, Speaker of the House and Keeper of the Crypt, Nancy Pelosi, and her husband, who's a strong DUI advocate, have just bought up to $5 million worth of semiconductor stocks. And coincidentally, that's just ahead of the Congressional House's big vote that targets the industry. And for all the skeptics out there who don't like criminal activity as they look at the insider trading and inappropriately label it insider trading, we'd like to point out on Nancy's behalf that if everyone knows about it, is it really insider trading? <laughs> and to go along with that, uh, here's a clip of a reporter asking her that. What are you saying? Uh, over the course of your career, has your husband ever made a stock purchase or sale based on information you received from you? No, absolutely not. Okay, thank you. I don't believe you. Yeah, so she was uh, asked whether or not her husband has made stock trades based on information she has given him. She didn't like the question, so she basically just kind of bent the mic down and said thank you and walked away kind of disgruntled <laughs> that somebody would dare ask her. She's like a royal in the House of Representatives. But dare she be asked something like that? Of course she's not worth hundreds of millions of dollars from insider trading. <laughs> oh, wait, let's see. Here's another clip of Nancy Pelosi since we're on that. Nancy Pelosi is currently the Speaker of the House for the United States government. And next week, her and the rest of Congress are going to vote on a $52 billion funding bill that is going to put money into the microchip industry in America. Now, Nancy knows that this vote is coming up, and she's also been talking to a lot of the people that are going to be voting on this bill. And if the bill passes, companies like Intel and NVIDIA that are based in the United States are probably going to do extremely well. And that just makes it even more interesting to see that Nancy Pelosi, in the month of June, sold off her Apple position, sold off her Visa position, and she purchased shares in NVIDIA. Now, if a regular person did something like that and traded based off non-public information, that's what's called insider trading. But when the government does it, it's just called planning ahead. <laughs> it's funny, but it's not funny. <laughs> uh rules for thee but not for me uh like i say the corruption is so deep and I, I, you know all the people she's talking to i guarantee are doing the same thing they're all buying in stock on all the same stuff and the, there was a funny thing i don't remember if i've mentioned this probably before but there was a group of people that were i don't know they had some kind of website or something that was basically follow the trades of Congress or something like that. So they were like literally posting uh, what congressional people were buying as far as stocks and you could follow their trades. And then as soon as it got out into the kind of the, the mainstream media area, then it just kind of disappeared. <laughs> and I'm sure those people that were doing it for a while probably made a fair, fairly good amount of money. I would say, 
I'd probably guess anyways. Um, let's see. Moving on to um, which other one that I got here? Uh, let's see. Oh, here's one from uh, PragerU again and Nicole Kidman about how delicious bugs are. Because this is part of the World Economics Forum things. To quit eating more meat, eat less meat, and dine on bugs. I'm Nicole Kidman, and I am going to eat four-course meal of bugs. Four-course meal of bugs. Mm. Extraordinary. Very moist. Chewy. Can't quite describe the flavor. But <sighs> need a little water. <laughs> Just a little side note. Ten I'm nuts. People in the world eat bugs, and I'm one of them. Do you want to, like, add anything else on why two billion people in the world eat bugs? Is it because they had, you know, a filet mignon in front of them and they went, oh, I'll take my mealworms instead. I prefer that. That's why two billion people in the world eat bugs. No, it's not. It's not, Nicole. It's like they're trying to sell you on this. And, and it's very similar to some of these articles that are coming out about climate change saying that the future of protein is bugs or Bill Gates himself saying the future of protein is synthetic meat. They're trying to sell you on something that we know is BS. So, but two billion people in the world eat bugs. Okay. Not because they want to. Nicole. <laughs> uh, I mean, literally, like a lot of people said, the jokes write themselves. <laughs> and she's just like in front of the camera, like, oh, these bugs are delicious. I love my four course grub worm or whatever, that, mealworm, whatever she was eating. Oh, it is hilarious. Oh, but here's a guy right here that will tell you what's up with the climate change. I've been listening to this bullshit for 50 years. In the 60s, it was oil will be gone in 10 years. In the 70s, it was another ice age in 10 years. In the 80s, it was acid rain will destroy all the crops in 10 years. In the 90s, it was the ozone layer will be destroyed in 10 years. In the 2000s, it was the glaciers will all melt in 10 years. In the 2010s, it was the east and west coast will be underwater from rising sea levels in 10 years. None of this fear-mongering nonsense came true, but it did result in higher taxes every time. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that was a pretty good take from somebody that's been around for a little while and seen all this stuff and uh, actually took the time to remember all that stuff. Um, let's see, what else do we have coming up? Oh, let's see. This is the WHO director, the WHO. I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international public concern. Public health emergency. Monkeypox. Now, I don't know if anybody's really even paid attention to this because it's as far as i've understood and the things i've read is been mostly sexually transmitted in the gay male community now i could be totally wrong on this so don't take my word for it by any means go do your own research monkeypox but the head of the who is declaring it a health emergency now remember because this is the world government's elite's 
and the leaders of the world's countries. The WHO is kind of just another arm of this movement from the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab to basically, you know, hey, we need another emergency in the U.S. Uh, or wherever because the governments need more control to control people's lives because they're not listening to us. Gosh dang it. Uh, oh, yeah. Here's Klaus Schwab in his own words. I've played this clip before. But there are two countries in the world now in which the young global meat leaders have emerged. Tell us just a bit about that in terms of the governance. Yes, um, actually, this uh, notion to integrate young leaders uh, is part of the world economic movement since many years. And I have to say, um, when I mention our names, like Mrs. Merkel, um, even um, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the world economy before. But um, what we are very proud of now is young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, rece at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet, or even more half of uh, half of this cabinet, are for our actually young global leaders of the world debate. And that's true in Argentina too. Well, yeah, sorry, that's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina, and uh, it's true in France now. I mean, with the president, with the young global leader, but. What is important for me is those young global leaders have an opportunity to come here. And we, in addition to the young global leaders, we have now the global chambers in 450 cities around the world. So here we have, as a result of what's happening in Canada, a focused example of how this global web, of which the World Economic Forum is a very significant part these days, imposes its will on different countries around the world by having its people in the positions of official, not real, power. Let's have a look at some of the names. The World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders School has included Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany for such a long time, Tony Blair, when his lips are moving the Global cult is speaking every time. Jacinda Ardern, who's turned New Zealand fascist. Governor Gavin Newsom, who's turned California fascist. Emmanuel Macron, who has turned France fascist. And Justin Trudeau, who's turned Canada fascist with his deputy prime minister the World Economic Forum Board of Trustee member, Christia Freeland. Schwab is running Canada and all that's going on now on behalf of his masters, the president of Argentina and Russia's um, Vladimir Putin were young global leader graduates of the World Economic Forum. We have um, two former presidents of the European Commission, Juncker and Barroso. 
We have the Prime Minister of Belgium, the Prime Minister of Finland, the President of Costa Rica, Peter Buttigieg, the um, US Secretary of uh, Transportation, the German Green Party uh, uh, Government Minister of Foreign Affairs, a Chancellor of Austria, a Saudi Arabian Minister of Economy and Planning, and then, and there's many more in the political arena, but then if you're looking at control of Silicon Valley, control of information, well, here's uh, more Schwab School graduates. Uh, Bill, COVID fascist Gates at Microsoft, Jeff Bezos, Amazon founder, owner of the Washington Post, Larry Page, founder of Google, Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, Nicholas Zenstrom, founder of Skype, Jimmy Whale, founder of Wikipedia, and Jack Ma, founder of the Chinese uh, internet tech giant Alibaba. <laughs> Hmm. Some interesting names. That's what kind of makes me, uh, and some others have brought this up as well, the uh, connection between Putin invo uh, invading Ukraine and now with like uh, they're talking about all the grain shortages that won't be coming out of Russia and stuff. I mean, it, it could be part of this whole plan to force and coerce people into thinking, into eating, into how you travel. Because if not, then all of what that guy said in these, you know, global leaders is all nonsense. If this stuff isn't all a big cabal plan. But everybody says, well, how could that be? How would that be kept a secret? Well, if they're all of the same mindset, they're not out. You know, there's a reason why most of these leftists here in America don't talk to any kind of conservative reporters because they'll, they'll know or they know that they're going to get asked actual real questions. Not just, oh, here, well, there's this pre-planned question uh, for your pre-planned answer. It, it doesn't work like that between the two sides in America and they, and you're starting to see it around the world, you know, like farmers in Europe and stuff are starting to catch on to the cabal of nonsense that is basically destroying their livelihoods, causing them basically to essentially give up their farms to the government because the regulations in those countries are putting them out of business. And the more and more that happens around the world, the more and more it tightens up the food supply. Now, if you want to know how the communists always won against their people, is they starved them first. And it makes you very submissive and weak, so you can't fight back against their tyranny. And there's another reason why all those same governments took away their right to bear arms. And anybody that's lived from especially the, the Nazi Germany area of that time, will tell any American or any other countryman from whatever country you're at, if you're still allowed to have firearms, even in most of those, is don't give up your guns. Because that's the first thing the Germans did 
or the Nazis did to the Jews was make sure they were unarmed. Because that way, whenever they needed to go round them up, when the time was ready, um, it didn't take much. They, it, you essentially gave up or you got a bullet to the back of the head. So, I'm going to take a quick break here. Because <laughs> I got uh, plenty more where that came from. So, like I said, this episode's going to be all over the place. But, we will be right back with them more. Okay, back to the nonsense we go. <laughs> okay, so this is a interpretation. So, so this is a different side of the argument over what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine. And like I say, you know, they've Klaus Schwab has obviously touted him as one of his students of the the global leaders. Blah blah blah. But this is uh, it's showing. Vladimir Putin talking, doing a speech somewhere. So I guess take this one with a grain of salt because I don't know if this is really what he's saying, but this is them interpreting it of him. Anyways. Both at the national and global levels, the foundations and revolutionary transformations are increasingly gaining momentum and strength. These tremendous changes are certainly irreversible. And both at the national and global levels, the foundations and principles of a harmonious, more equitable, socially oriented and secure world order are being developed, an alternative to the existing or, as we can say, to the previously existing unipolar world order, which by its nature, of course, becomes a break on for the development of civilization. The model of total domination of the so-called golden billion is unfair. Why should this golden billion of all the population on the globe dominate everyone and impose its own rules of behavior? Based on the illusion of exceptionalism, its model, it divides the people into first or second rate, and therefore it is racist and neocolonial in its essence, while the globalist, allegedly liberal ideology underlying it, is more and more acquiring the features of totalitarianism. So that, uh, like I say, is an interpretation of what Vladimir Putin was saying at this thing. Uh, I don't know, some conference or something he was speaking at. So that's been the other side of the argument of why people think that he invaded Ukraine uh, because Zelensky is another one of those global leaders. And also probably some other things that Vladimir Putin wants to do with Russia and his his views of what he would like to bring the glory of his country back to, which, I mean... A lot of people want to demonize him for that, but I mean, that's what most countries would aspire to is bringing your country up in the world. And, you know, like I know here in America, a lot of college age kids that have been brainwashed at college to hate America, they don't have any national pride. It's rather kind of disturbing. But that's the, the world we're living in these days, unfortunately. Um, so let's go on to this uh, next one. It says Tate breaks down the new world order. I don't know who Tate is, so I guess you can look it up. <laughs> oh, crap. What happened? I'm not getting any sound here. Hold on. Hold on. Let me start this one over. Patience, folks. Patience. The world is changing. The world up until this point was based on freedom. How they advertise you to be a good slave 
was they would give you some freedom. And when I say slave, I use that word particularly because a slave used to work his ass off and he would get food and a house in return. And 99% of people out here, my friend, are working their asses off. They can buy food and a house. That's it. Most people are still slaves. So most people who are slaves, they would tell you, you're going to be a slave, but you'll be free at least. You know, you can you can do what you want. You can think what you want. You can say what you want. You can walk around outside, look at the trees. You're a slave, but you're free. Freedom, freedom, freedom. And what happened when they did this, something changed. The internet came. People started to talk. People started to think. People started to realize how money's made. People started to realize it's all a scam. People started to realize that countries were in massive debt because people are in massive debt and there's no way to escape. Cryptocurrency was invented. Now you have Bitcoin, which is surpassing the global reserve currency. We don't need banks anymore. We don't need the IMF anymore. People are starting to talk. People have elected Trump, a man who's not bought and controlled by the establishment. People are starting to actually get their minds right. So the people in charge are like, oh, fuck. We're losing control. We no longer control the money. We no longer control who's in charge of each country. Oh, fuck, we've got to put an end to this. We can no longer base our societies on freedom. We must base our societies on safety. You can't think for yourself. We can't put these videos on YouTube because it's fake news and it's dangerous. You can't go outside because of the virus and it's dangerous. You can't travel in between countries without that injection because it's dangerous. This is no longer about freedom, my friends. This is about your safety. They're going to take all your freedom away, and instead they're going to give you a nice big helping of safety. And you're going to take it and go, oh, at least I'm safe. You were safer before. You were safer before, because now the government can arrest you for saying something they don't like. Because now you're spreading fake news. You were safer when you could have an opinion. You were safer before all this shit. They're going to take all your freedom away and give you safety, and you're going to be less safe than you've ever been. And you're still going to be a slave. Oh, ouch. Truth hurts sometimes, though, my friends. Truth hurts. <laughs> uh, so let's see um, on that. Oh, yeah, here's a, here's one more here with the Mr. Klaus Schwab. The role of governments is more important and more relevant than ever. What is also needed is a summit like this one to go beyond crisis management and to look into constructive ways we can build our common future. Our futures are intrinsically connected to one another as the profound challenges to mankind, such as climate change, are globally interconnected and require collaborative responses. In conclusion, and despite all the challenges, we have to uphold our responsibility which we have towards the next generation and which we can only fulfill through collaboration on a national and on a global level hit it this is a very sensitive subject yeah it's kind of a meme of him's face on uh, dr evil <laughs> It does the World Government Summit at the end. <laughs> like I say, some of the uh, stuff that people would come up with is just pure genius. <laughs> oh, it's it entertains me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so there's that. <laughs> um, let's see. What else do we got here? <laughs> Using the classroom to create Marxist revolutionaries has been the plan all along. Now, 
I mean, this this kind of goes back to what I've said in past episodes of the whole Yuri Bezmenov on communist takeover uh, from the school systems out. Because realistically, I mean, if you actually pay attention, you can see this stuff happening, especially from people that that feel and think that they are educated. But realistically, all they're getting is a brainwashed degree. And it's, it's a piece of paper that supposedly makes you feel like you're more superior than other people that don't have one of those. Even though it's the people that don't have one of those typically that keep everything else in this world going. Keeps economies going. Because you got a, a doctorate in psychology that, uh, you know, in gender studies and you have you know colored your hair and i don't care colored hair is cool in a lot of places but for some reason all these libs that are just fanatics they seem to all have funky colored hair (laughs) i say nothing against it some some of it actually looks pretty good but here's this that is under the banner of Antifa is, is very loosely organized, right? Um, so that, yeah, when when there's, like, right-wing rallies and stuff, then it'll be, like, she'll create an opposition to that. Yeah. Where would you go to connect with some of these organizations? Like, they... no, I, I post calendar every week. Awesome. And then, so, like, they, it's, and I do it for extra credit, so they get points for doing it. Like, and so that encourages them to do it. <laughs> and I've, I've had, like, students show for, like, protests, community events, you know, tabling, food distribution, also for when they go, they take pictures, they write up a reflection, that's their exercise. Like, I, I have an Antifa flag on my on my wall. Um, and a student complained about that, and he said it made him feel uncomfortable. Well, this is meant to make fascists feel uncomfortable, so if you feel uncomfortable, I, I don't really know what <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be aligning with the, the values that it, this is antithetical to. So, the Cultural Revolution in the city. So, this is Gabriel Geip. He's a public high school teacher at the Intercom High School in Sacramento, California. So like I said, more than likely this guy has been educated with one of these leftist professors that's teaching the next generation of teachers. And that's how the pyramid keeps getting built. You know, people want to try and figure out, there's no way that the Egyptians can build these pyramids. There's just no way. Well, the same way that using these Marxist revolutionaries are teachers nowadays and teaching the youth and then they grow up and you know it's just like a cancer just completely keeps spreading but this video goes on was fixing the problem that came about after the economic crisis. It ultimately failed, right? Um, and there was a lot of excesses. People were definitely like, you know, shot in the streets that probably shouldn't have been. Your tax dollars at work. That was a public high school AP government teacher in Sacramento, California. Unfortunately, this teacher's aspirations are by no means a rogue event. Ever since Karl Marx, many educators have become enamored with the call to revolution. It's no coincidence. Marx demands that the intellectual class, the professors of law, sociology, history, women's studies, anthropology, journalism, and so on, come out of the ivory tower and join the barricades to see themselves not as the preservers of the dusty past, but the creators of a new and glorious future. 
the lure has proven to be very strong, and it's not hard to understand why. How much more meaningful, exciting, and romantic to see yourself as an agent of change rather than a mere academic? How much more meaningful, exciting, and romantic to see the young people who fill up your classroom as potential soldiers in the cause? Send them into the world with the same revolutionary spirit, the same disgust toward bourgeois middle-class values that you feel, and you've done your job. And we must give these lecture hall revolutionaries their due. Look around. For the most part, they've succeeded. Drill into any current leftist movement, environmentalism, critical race theory, the massive expansion of the welfare state, not to mention diversity, equity, and inclusion offices at every university and major corporation, and you will find Marxism at its core, a contempt of the Enlightenment and the Judeo-Christian value system from which capitalism springs. Marx's most famous call to action, workers of the world unite, was not, of course, to the professoriate, but to the laboring class. That didn't work out so well. Workers, especially in the United States, turned out to be more interested in refrigerators than revolutions. The only barricade they were passionate about was a white picket fence in front of a green suburban lawn. Poor, benighted souls, the appeal of Marxism was somehow lost on them, maybe because they didn't go to college. But the intellectual class never lost faith. Even after Stalin, even after Mao, even after Castro wrecked Cuba, even after Pol Pot murdered millions of his fellow Cambodians, even after Hugo Chavez destroyed the strongest economy in South America, the academic elite remained true believers. Indeed, in a world without faith, where God is dead, Marxism has become, in effect, a substitute religion. Yeah, a little bit of truth there, huh? Oops. Are you going to catch those little clips as they try and replay themselves so i try and catch them before it does that but i'm not the smartest person in the world <laughs> um let's see what else do we got here uh, okay this is just gonna be i don't know so i'm just gonna go to the next one this is uh what does it say hundreds of people marched on wednesday in puerto rico's capital san juan to demand that the island's government cancel its contract with the power grid operator Luma Energy over chronic power outages and frequent rate hikes. Uh, and it just shows uh, all these people walking, I guess, up to the towards their capital there in Puerto Rico. Because this is exactly, you know, people in these countries that aren't first world, I guess, I don't know how to really describe it, but they're in a warmer climate. So, and anybody here in the states knows this. You're you're in the southern states or southern California, places like that, and your power goes out, and it's the middle of the summer, and, and it's hot outside. You want to go inside and enjoy the luxuries of air conditioning, which there are a ton of people in this world that don't even understand what an air conditioner is. And me personally, I would like them to know that. I would like them to know that feeling of hey, this is what it's like to get out of the heat. And relax and enjoy a cool place to sit. And perhaps kick my feet up in a couch or a lazy boy and watch TV. Unfortunately, here in America, most of our open air TV or news media is all propaganda. 
Um, let's see. Next. Forum unveils the 2022 class of young global leaders. The World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader Initiative has yielded some of the most powerful people in the world. From leaders like Justin Trudeau and Gavin Newsom to tech giants like Larry Page and Mark Zuckerberg, the disciples of Klaus Schwab and a new world order make up a huge chunk of control over our world today. What many may not know is that Elon Musk is among them. I don't hold it against you if you didn't know because there seems to have been a concerted effort to hide this fact. The forum has over 1,400 members and alumni from more than 120 countries. The World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders School has included Angela Merkel. Oh, this is just a different one of that same one I already watched. Tony Blair. Never mind. We don't need to watch that one again. Um, The next one here that I have is it says, just a reminder that we live in a red country with blue dots. And it shows a map of the United States and pretty much everywhere is covered in red because that means it's Republican or more conservative. And all the blue areas are the high density areas, big city people that are Democrats and have high numbers in those areas. Uh, it's pretty mind boggling. And so anytime you're, you're hearing, oh, you know, the blue, the blue wave or the blue majority or, you know, all that stupid political garbage that just drives me nuts from both sides. It is mostly, I don't know if I could really label it conservative, but more common sense. (laughs) I mean, people that have common sense know that we like to have farmers and we like to have ranchers because I like a steak. I like hamburgers. I, I even like hot dogs. I'm not too proud to admit that. I like hot dogs, <laughs> not all the time, but I mean, it's kind of like bologna sandwiches. They're nice every now and then. <laughs> uh, all right. What's next? Oh, you know, COVID's going to come back. So there's that. Parents who, who don't want to wear a mask indoors in school. Are there any other options for them? For the fall, there are some options. They can go to our uh, school that's online. Um, they can opt not to return to the regular school, but to go to the school where they don't have to go to school at all other than via Zoom. Yeah. And um, that's the easiest way for folks. What who about don't the want summer school? What if they were already enrolled in the summer school and now they get this mask mandate and they're not comfortable with wearing a mask? They really should wear the mask. But and if they're not, not comfortable, um, what should they do? They should just let make it known that they don't feel comfortable and at that point just not return. That was, uh, I think, San, like San Diego School District, something similar to that. And they just, if you're not going to be submissive and you're not going to wear the mask because they say so, they, they themselves aren't going to wear them, of course. But you, the students, you have to wear them or just don't come back. We really don't care because we're going to get paid either way. So we'd assume just to not have you come back and just get paid for doing nothing. Well, that's why a lot of them don't like school choice because then the money follows the student and then they don't get paid. <laughs> Imagine that if you just don't go to work, uh, you don't get paid or you don't do your job, you don't get paid. That's a weird concept. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, this world's gone mad. Um, let's see. Oh, here's here's a good clip to go along with money. That such noble objectives 
Milton Friedman. such disappointing results. In my opinion, the fundamental answer is very simple. Using government to achieve these objectives means trying to do good with someone else's money. And when you try to do good with someone else's money, there are two basic flaws in the process. The first of those is that nobody spends somebody else's money as carefully as he spends his own. And therefore, you are going to have waste and ultimately fiscal catastrophe. But the second is that you cannot do good with someone else's money unless you first take it away from them. And therefore, force, coercion, sending a policeman around to pick somebody else's pocket is at the very heart of the welfare state. And the situation becomes one in which bad means corrupt the good intentions. While others trusted the government to make good decisions, Friedman trusted people and the market. Excessive government control, regulation, and taxation, he persuasively argued, distorted incentives and put money in the hands of politicians and bureaucrats who had not earned it and suffered no consequences if their policies failed. As his fame spread, Friedman always held fast to his guiding principle, that freedom is not the rule, but the exception. The typical state of mankind, he wrote, is tyranny, servitude, and misery. So the prize of liberty is eternal vigilance and knowing Milton Friedman. You know, one of those other people that are just uh, smart enough to understand the logic in what they're saying. And I, among other people, had the same thing that taxes, uh, to a point, need to, you know, should be paid. Because there are some good that comes out of it. But mostly it's just theft from the working class. That's really mostly what taxes end up being. Because the way our government works is they took it from somebody. They didn't actually earn it. And it's a lot easier just to blow it. Since you didn't have to use your blood, sweat, and tears to get it. And, you know, I I still think the welfare system is a good thing to have. But it shouldn't be a wheelchair. It should be a crutch until your leg gets better. And then you get rid of the crutch and you go on with your life. Not just, well, this wheelchair is comfortable. I think I'll just stay here the rest of my life. That's what the welfare system has turned into, unfortunately. And it ruins it for the people that actually need it. I tell you what. Common sense is dead. Pretty much. I think that's what the the gist of it mostly is. Um, What's this next one? messages published by the whistleblowing organization show how while the Clinton camp was facilitating the rise of Trump, it was systematically undermining the campaign of Senator Bernie Sanders, Clinton's left-wing opponent. This guy Sanders, we've got to fuck him up. This guy Trump, let's elevate him. Then I'll be president of the whole United States of America. Be free of any threats from the left. We'll have to do things to serve ordinary people. Free from Donald Trump. Wait, what's going on? Oh, shit! Leaked emails from the Democratic National Committee show that the organization which is supposed to be bound in impartiality sabotaged Sanders' insurgent presidential campaign, which had mobilized millions of people and inspired a massive grassroots movement. Instead of harnessing that, instead of saying, hey, wait a minute, look at that. This guy, he's inspiring ordinary Americans. I've not seen a political movement like this. What should we do? What Could we harness it? Could we use that to create a new kind of politics that serves ordinary American peoples, make the banks accountable, bring down big business, have a reliable mainstream media? And here's the guy to do it. Ron Hicks! Okay, so there you have it. Politics in America, perhaps across the world, is a game. A game that's about sustaining systemic power and serving donors, big business, big media, globalist corporations, and ignoring the will and even the needs of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. And uh that's coming from a Brit. <laughs> oh, oh boy. 
tell you what, when uh, you get people like that that are speaking common sense, it's getting scary. <laughs> uh, what was this other one? Oh, just following news here. Uh, in drought conditions and low lake levels, there are a lot more areas you can keep more fish. Here in Utah, at least. Six water bodies around the state. They are anticipating lower water levels at some lakes and reservoirs because of the drought. So the following changes will, will remain in effect until September 30th. Uh, Otter Creek Reservoir in Paiute County increasing the daily limit to eight trout, six wipers. Wipers. That just sounds like a gross word. Minersville Reservoir in Beaver County increasing the daily limit to four trout with no size restrictions and three wipers. Uh, what a dumb thing to call a fish. The restriction for using legal bait has also been temporarily removed until September 30th because, you know, they want to get the fish out of the water so they're not just dying in the warm water and then stinking the whole place up for the most part. Um, Vernon Reservoir, Tula County, increasing the daily limit to eight trout. It's a pretty small reservoir, so, I mean, if you're like me, I don't catch anything. I'm good at casting, not so good at catching um, let's see, Otter Creek, oh, I read that, where am I, okay, Yuba Reservoir in Juab County, increasing the daily limit to a combined total of 20 walleye, so a combined number of 20, of either walleye, wiper, trout, any species, tiger, muskie, northern pike, and channel catfish, no size restrictions. Fairview Lakes in San Pete County, increasing the daily limit to eight trout. One additional water body, Spring Lake Community Pond in Utah County will be drained so Pace and City officials can make necessary infrastructure repairs. The daily limit was initially increased on January 13th with a targeted end date of March 18th. However, because the lake has not yet been drained, it still has catchable fish. The new daily limit was extended until July 11th and is now being extended until December 31st. Spring Lake Community Pond increasing the daily limit for sport fish to 8 Common carp do not count towards the daily limit. You can just catch as many as you want. They're pretty much a nuisance fish anyways. They, uh, kind of one of those weird fish that's like the seal. Somehow should be our state fish is the carp. <laughs> uh, um, just as a side note, all other rules in the Utah Fishing Guidebook have not changed and still apply. Learn more at their link in their bio. And that is the Utah DWR. So, coming down on my 30-minute time limit here. So, I will be taking a quick break and be right back. All right. So, I've also got some quotes here that I thought were, I don't know, inspirational, I guess you could say. Uh, dad talk today is also another page I follow on Instagram. And this was probably, I'm sure coming around when father's day was here, that's probably just one I've had in here for a while. So let's get to it. It says, what is a dad? Question mark. A dad is someone who wants to catch you before you fall, but instead picks you up, brushes you off and lets you try again. A dad is someone who wants to keep you from making mistakes, but instead lets you find your own way, even though his heart breaks in silence when you get hurt. A dad is someone who holds you when you cry, scolds you when you break the rules, 
shines with pride when you succeed and has faith in you even when you fail. I just thought that was a good quote, so I'll just pass that on to you. Um, what's another one here? Oh, here's a, this is another good one, too, that I really liked. At times when he's going in on our boys, I'll chime in because I feel like he's being a little too rough on them. He feels like I'm making them soft. How should our responses or how should I act in the situations when he's disciplining our boys? Well, you don't have to agree with everything he does, but why don't you just stay out the way? I mean, and I'm not being sexist, but listen to this. Why did you marry your husband? Because I love him. Is he the man of your dreams? Yes, he is. <laughs> is he the man you hope your sons will grow up to be? Yes. So why would you stop him from raising them into that? It is hard on them because they boys. Undisciplined boys grow up to be undisciplined men. Do you know the problem you're going to have? Yes. Undisciplined men end up in the hospital or in a prison. Or they end up in a grave. That's what happens to undisciplined men. Another good quote, or, you know, little clip from Dad Talk today. Oh, if you would like those, you can follow them on Instagram as well. <laughs> I don't know. They're probably other places too. I don't know, but that's, I don't have Facebook. So that's where I follow their stuff. Um, But to that point, do you see some of the problems with our boys these days in society? I mean, if, if you really just walk around and see where these, how these boys act these days, uh, I think a lot of it is parents are trying to be their friends. You know, there's this this generation, you know, it's like, I'm your friend, not your parent. You know, I want to be the cool parent, that type of thing. And they just don't discipline them. Because they think they're doing them a favor by not discipline. I'm not saying you got to like, whoop their butts all the time. You know, beating them or something like that. But they need to know who's in charge. And they need to know that they need to listen to adults and have respect for adults, especially the parents. So if they're undisciplined boys, they grow up to be undisciplined men. And I think we see a lot of that these days in our society. So that was that one. Um, what else we got here? So I think uh, June, we all seen what June's turned into. Uh, the real deal of parenting is another one I follow. And there's a Regan long that they had reposted, I guess. And it says June will forever be devoted to the sacred heart of Jesus. And now pro-life month, God called, he wants his rainbow back. And no disrespect to anybody that thinks they, you know, are being attacked here, but it's true. Do your thing. Don't force it on everybody else. And I mean, you've taken over a whole entire month. That used to be uh, Father's Day, you know, or the month that Father's Day fell in. Anymore, it doesn't seem like it's just a who cares. There's no genders. Why do we need Father's Day? We want to go twerk down the Main Street parade in downtown Salt Lake. Or San Francisco or whatever you guys feel like you got to do. I don't really care. 
go have your personal lives or whatever, but have a parade if you want. But you don't need to be doing it freaking three-fourths buck-ass naked. So I thought that was a good quote from there. God wants his rainbow back. Um, what do we got here? Oh, <laughs> oops, not that one. Uh, dad talk today. So it's got a picture of, if you know who the Tiger King guy is, <laughs> and he had a, he has a quote in there that's been it's gone around at a bunch of different memes. It still makes me laugh. Um, it has him putting <laughs> putting gas in a car and says, "I am never going to financially recover from this." <laughs> If you watch the Lion, or not the Lion King, <laughs> the Tiger King episodes, uh, he talks about that. I'm never going to financially recover from this. Anyways, you'd, it's probably funnier to me than if you haven't seen that show. Oh, <laughs> uh, what else we got here? Oh, let's see. Here's a little thing from Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Why hunting is conservation number 16 in 2010. There was $2.46 million that came in. Um, in 2019, it's $3.92 million that came in. 59% increase from 2010 to 2019 of female participation in hunting being on the rise. Good for you, ladies. Um, Let's see here. What else do we have? Um, no, no, no. Uh, speaking of gas prices, here's an oil exec giving a speech here in Congress. Guarantee to the American people because of the inaction of the United States Congress ever increasing prices unless the demand comes down and the $5 will look like a very low price in the years to come if we are prohibited from finding new reserves, new opportunities to increase supplies. And guess what this liberal would be all about? This liberal will be all about socializing. Uh, uh, Oops, slip. Would be about basically taking over and the government running all of your companies. Uh, yeah, I have two words for you. Venezuela tried that. Actually, that's probably a few different words. Anyways, I don't math so so good sometimes. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, Maxine Waters. You know, one of them kook jobs from California. I don't know. I don't why. Why do they congregate there? I don't understand. I, it seems like most of the nut jobs come from the east and west coast, especially the big cities. But that's basically what happened to Venezuela. The the government decided they knew how to run the oil and gas industry better than the private sector. And now you see the aftermath of what's happened to Venezuela. People are starving. There's no gas. They don't have gas. Haven't had it for a while. Uh, if our governments start taking over private industries like that... Um, We've got a serious problem, especially if freaking people like that lady are running stuff. Um. Oh, let's see here. What do we have here? Um. I don't even know what this one is. I'm just going to click on it and see what it says. <laughs> Mr. Cohen is wrong. Canada's not the most free country in the world, young people. America is the greatest nation in the world. We're the most free, most successful, most powerful nation because finally now we have been 
We've tried to live up to the ideals articulated in the Declaration of Independence. And finally, now the Supreme Court, after 50 years, nearly 50 years of an atrocity, has brought us back to that truth. Brought us back to that truth. It's my time. I will not yield, Mr. Cohen, because your 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 comments are absurd. Then this hearing is your comments absurd. This hearing is Mr. Johnson's time is to come. Thank you. This hearing is absurd. The Democrat majority has called us here for this hearing entitled The Threat to Individual Freedoms in a Post-Roe World. Come on. The first inalienable individual freedom is the right to be born. It's the right to life. We boldly declared that in our nation's birth certificate. America should continue to uphold the sanctity of human life. And state and local and federal government officials have a duty. Now, I'm not sure where what state this guy is from, but he was trying to be interrupted by a Democrat that, you know, is probably one of the guys that organized this stupid meeting that in the first place. And he's like, and this was after Roe was overturned. So, you know, there's having the freak out moment and want to change the rules and speak out about it. And it's like, you know what? You guys are the ones that always are throwing stuff at the Supreme court to decide for you instead of, all coming together and debating on whether or not a law should be changed. Instead, you you lose, you whine and cry, and try and get the Supreme Court to do your dirty work for you. So you have a scapegoat. But this keeps going on. A constitutional responsibility to protect that fundamental right. All life is precious. And there is an inherent compelling interest in protecting unborn children because they are unable to protect themselves. But the radical advocates of abortion are now completely unhinged, and they are seeking to trample on the individual freedoms of all those who disagree with them. Over the weekend, the left-wing activist group Shut Down D.C. offered $200 bounties for public sightings of Supreme Court justices they disagree with. It's obvious the point of their tweet and, and all the attention they were trying to gather there is to get people to harass conservative justices when they're out in public. They don't have any individual freedoms. Hey, man, they're fair game. Then, then Senator Elizabeth Warren, I mean, she is completely unhinged now. She said pro-life pregnancy centers should be shut down all around the country. It's, it's, it's appalling for her pro-life to say Pro-life um, There are 2,700 centers. pregnancy centers all around this country, all 50 states. They're supported by over 10,000 licensed medical professionals. They annually serve approximately 2 million women and men. I was legal counsel for many of these pregnancy centers. I can tell you from my own experience, they do exceptional, critical work. Why would anybody want to shut down pregnancy centers that exist to provide counseling, care, aid, and comfort to struggling mothers who just want to have their babies? It defies logic, but the answer is simple. Their extreme agenda demands it. And speaking of extreme agendas, let me tell you what my friends on the other side of the aisle are for, okay? They, they filed the H.R. 8296 in this Congress. They, they call it the Women's Health Protection Act of 2022. We call it the Abortion on Demand Until Birth Act. You, want, you don't know why? Because it's extreme. It would create a national standard to allow for abortions for unborn children for any reason at any stage of pregnancy up until birth. Read the bill. That's not a talking point. It, it allows for discriminatory abortions on the basis of the baby's sex, race, and disability. It would override pro-life laws and prohibit states from enacting legislation that protects unborn children, such as protections for babies with Down syndrome and other disabilities. It removes common sense protections for women and children. For example, the Abortion on Demand Until Birth Act, the Democrats' bill, would not allow states to enact laws to ensure parental involvement for minors. 
laws to protect women folk from coercion. They don't care. The agenda demands, the zeal for this demands that they override all that. Their bill includes vague language that could also weaken conscience protections for medical professionals and limit their right to refuse to participate in an abortion. You think that they're not all on board for this? Guess what? On September 24th of last year, all but one Democrat in the House of Representatives voted on an almost identical bill. Go look it up. H.R. 3755. Abortion on demand until birth. That's what this agenda demands. Ms. Foster said it so well earlier. You mentioned this agenda begins with dehumanizing the unborn child. I just have a minute left, but in my experience, my colleagues here are not able to acknowledge that what is inside the mother's womb is actually a child. In, in your work and your experience, has that been yours as well? It has been. And, and it, there's a reason, I think, that they won't acknowledge that it's a child, because then it allows them to pursue this radical abortion on demand until birth. If we, I believe, and this is for all the young people here and those watching, I believe if you can, in this debate, if you can take people to the medical reality of the humanity of the unborn child, we win. This is a pro-life country, increasingly so, because we have medical technology. We have 4D ultrasounds. No one can lie to us anymore and tell us it's a blob of tissue, that, it, that it's just a clump of cells. This is a baby. At six weeks, it has a heartbeat. At 15 weeks, it can feel pain, suck its thumb, it has eyebrows. Uh, lips, nose, and the whole thing. Look at the reality, folks. Do not be, do not let them obscure the facts. We're a pro-life country. We should be. I'm out of time. I yield back. Mr. Cohen is wrong. Nope. There, I did it again. But, I mean, I, I don't even have anything to rebut about that. I mean, that's pretty much anybody that has any common sense understands. Like, say, technology. We have tons of technology these days. But if you suppress that technology, you don't let women see their baby, like its shape, its form. I mean, like I said, 4D technology. I mean, you can see every little aspect of this child. You can tell that it's a boy or a girl early on in this fetus's development inside the womb. You can know that. But instead, they just try and pawn it off and use these falsehoods that aren't even near the truth of it's a clump of cells. They justify it away for their bad behavior, men and women. Because, like I've said before, it takes two to tango. But this uh, alternate reality that a lot of people are living in these days end up saying stupid stuff like this. And out of are also seemingly really into the idea of finding out their child's sex really early on. And I think this is because of this like underlying cultural idea that gender confers humanity. And, you know, if you're against people aborting fetuses, you need to construct them as like fully people. And one of the mechanisms to do so is by inferring, by putting gender on them. So like, you know, we often call fetuses like it or... We call even early babies, we often call it, you know, babies like it, it's crying because it's like not quite gotten gender and it's not quite become a person. But like a lot of conservatives who are really anti-abortion and really pro-reproduction, they're obsessed with gendering their children before they're even born. So they come into a world fully gendered because it's like how to humanize them and to stop people from being able to have safe access to abortions. That, my friend is what 
a lot of unfortunately misguided people believe. And I, I, I mean, I really don't have any whole lot else to say about that, uh, other than crazy. Um, let's see here. Oh, I think we got some Joe Biden stuff here. This ought to be good. <laughs> oh, here is uh, Joe Biden, nineteen ninety one. If you have a piece of crack cocaine, no bigger than this quarter that I'm holding in my hand, one quarter of one dollar. We passed a law through the leadership of Senator Thurman and myself and others, a law that says if you're caught with that, you go to jail for five years. You get no probation. You get nothing other than five years in jail. Judge doesn't have a choice. And it switches to his son videoing himself doing a drug deal with 20 kilograms of crack cocaine. Zero to seven. <laughs> well, you know, if you're connected. You a piece of crack cocaine, no bigger than this quarter that I'm holding in my hand. <laughs> oh, man. Technology, you know, is not their friend. Because, <laughs> you know, he's been in office a lot long time way longer than any human should spend in i'm air quote in your public office <laughs> uh but like i say you know it's just a lot like the hillary clinton or you know not hillary clinton but a lot like the clintons um there's a there's a problem with habitual liars i think they've just lied so much and for so long they believe their own lies Joe Biden's no exception. And now he's just senile and just says whatever's on the teleprompter. <laughs> oh, let's see. What else we got here? Hmm. Oh, biolab companies in Ukraine. You know, kind of where Hunter was on the board of the Burisma gas company. New evidence that Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, actually helped to secure millions of dollars in funding for a Ukrainian biolab company. Hunter Biden's laptop showed that he was, in fact, an investor in MetaBiota, a Department of Defense contractor specializing in research on pandemic-causing diseases. He and his partners at Rosemont Seneca actually invested about $500,000 into MetaBiota. Financial reports reveal that RSTP led the company's first round of funding, which amounted to $30 million. Emails and documents suggest that Hunter Biden had a prominent role in making sure that MetaBiota was able to conduct its pathogen research just a few hundred miles from the border with Russia. Government spending records show the Department of Defense awarded an $18.4 million contract to MetaBiota, which again means $18.4 million contract contract that Hunter Biden helped to secure from the Department of Defense occurred while his father was still vice president of the United States and was the person that President Obama put in charge of overseeing Ukraine. True. All true. <laughs> but, you know, you're not going to hear that from the big six media companies because, you know, they're kind of in the bag for the guy, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it'd be it'd be a shame if your business burnt to the ground. The corruption is so mind-blowing right now, and it's still mind-blowing. I mean, I know there's still tons of people that watch the news, and I wish I had 
one of the clips that I heard on the Jesse Kelly show the other day, because they, you know, they've got people that are smart, way smarter than I am, put together in montages of the January 6th uh, showboat show trial, basically is what it turns into being, to try and impeach Donald Trump yet a third time on something that he had literally nothing to do with. But they can't have the truth come out about that. So the media covers. But there was a montage of clips from all these news media outlets talking about, you know, giddy. They were giddy that it's coming to the season ending of the January 6th trial. And it's like, oh, technology, like I say, is not their friend because this can go all over the Internet and anybody that's remotely interested in finding out the truth can find it. And then, you know, people that are smarter than me can put all these clips together and let you hear them back to back, all parroting the same garbage. (laughs) It's like, you know, you go, you go back and watch their stuff about January 6th and the riot that ensued. They've cherry picked small little out of context clips, make it look like Trump said to go down there and, stop this uh, peaceful transition of power from happening and let me be dictator of the world. I mean, that's essentially how they tried to piece it together. That's that's what Trump said. <laughs> it's pathetic, really. But there's enough people that, like I used to be, would watch the news thinking they were telling you the truth. And unfortunately, you know, you got still half the country that watches them (laughs) and believes that they're telling them the truth. So maybe one of these days, more people wake up. That's, I guess, our hope. Um, What is this one here? Let's see. Votant 382, exprimé 379, la majorité 190, pour 196, contre 180. Okay, so uh, France's government has suffered its first defeat in Parliament after President... Emmanuel Macron's ruling party lost its majority in elections last month. After a late-night debate, opposition lawyers rejected a proposal to give the government powers to reinstate a COVID-19 health pass at the borders. Hmm. Well, there you have that one. Um, Coming up on, let's see, almost 24 minutes here. Oh, it's getting late in the evening today, so maybe I'll quit boring you guys and do, let's see, what else? I got. I know I've got, I've saved so many interesting things here that you guys are just so wanting to hear. <laughs> uh, actually, um, I don't know really what to end on it here. So much good stuff. And unfortunately, this is probably going to be... Well, it's, it's kind of, I guess, a good one. So, since I'm coming up to the end of this segment, I'm just going to end it with this one. ...customized right now. When right. you order a car, what you want to eat, everything is ultra-customized. Right. Except for education. It right. seems we go through the same system that's been there. But what I'm hearing you say is that you may be in fourth grade, but you could be reading at a sixth grade level, but your math is at a second grade level. Right. And because of your structure, you're able to help that, those, those meet those kids where they are. Exactly. So at our school, there's really no such thing as behind, as long as students are moving.
moving along and learning, um, we can really drill down in specific areas where their strengths are, where they're passionate about, and know as long as we're keeping track of what the student knows, what they don't know, what they've not just what they've been taught, because oftentimes people teach things and they think students know it, but they don't. So they may be all over the place in in where they are academically, but that's just how we are as humans. It's that's sort of naturally how we learn. That was exploring the so, micro schools so and, you know, how they can actually help students achieve academic excellence and, you know, actually learn something instead of being woke activists. That, unfortunately, is a travesty because, I mean, that's farther and farther down the road of destruction of where all these, you know, new woke teachers are coming out of colleges to teach our kids and other people's kids that the the real pathway forward is to be an activist not to be educated and know anything but to be an activist so once again if you can homeschool your kids because <laughs> they will get a better education than most of these public schools unfortunately i mean i'm not saying they're all bad but there is it's getting worse so, on a good note, there are options <laughs> for the most part, but you got to get active and educated on what those options are and get your legislations in your local states and communities to follow those options to give our kids a fighting chance in this world. Because if not, it's just going to be like that uh, one guy saying, we're all just a different form of slaves. Depends on how they want to mold us. So I'll just keep uh, saving all these great clips that I keep finding. And eventually another day I'll bring some more of those back and go over a bunch of other things all over the place again. Uh, if it doesn't make your head spin <laughs> with my squirrel brain ideas going on here. So with that, I'm going to say thanks for listening to the Nielsen Show, where I'm always improving but never getting better. And until next time, folks, keep it real.